You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. It's time to reimagine therapy and what it means to be a therapist. We are human beings who can now present ourselves as whole people with authenticity, purpose, and connection, especially now when therapists must develop a personal brand to market their practices. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Katie. And I'm Kurt. And today we're talking about vulnerability and owning your own mistakes. The, the reason for this podcast topic is that it's something that's very present for both Kurt and me. We have been putting together the podcast. We've been looking at some different things that we're putting together and it can feel very easy to make mistakes. And it can also feel like we're putting a lot of ourselves out there and wondering how people are going to respond to it. And really where this came up is not in necessarily our recordings, but when we sit down and edit these and the judgment that we place upon ourselves in looking at, wow, did I really come across as the way that I intended to? And there's things that happen in the moment that seem very fun and play very well between Katie and I in our moment by moment relationship. But as you sit and you re-edit yourselves over and over and hear your voice over and over again, sometimes you start to creep in there with a little bit of, wow, that might not really come across as I had intended. I think for me, it definitely has had some imposter syndrome flare up where I feel like I should be perfect. There should be no ums. There should be no the, 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 the. I, I do that sometimes. And, you know, saying the same phrases over and over again. And I think you can get very judgmental about yourself, especially when you're recording, when you're putting yourself out there in a real way. And we realized in being vulnerable in this process that this is what whole person therapists do every single day. One of the techniques that I've used in supervising trainees and freshly licensed people. It's something that I even do in my practice from time to time is I do record some of my sessions. I encourage my supervisees with consent to record sessions with their clients and then to sit down and transcribe what is happening in the room as a therapeutic tool of monitoring how they're coming across and, and seeing the intention of what they're doing and if it's working through or if how I'm working through with a client, if I'm missing things that the clients are saying. While the technical aspects are very, very close to what happens here with the podcast, it's something that only I ever have to hear. And so the vulnerability and the judgment is all self-directed and it's something that as a learning tool is, is very strong. However, I'm now recording my voice for all of you and really looking at, am I portraying what I want to? And really, I think up to this point, I am that I want to be present. I want to be me as much as I'd love to polish up and take out those ums and the repetitive words that Katie brought up earlier. It's something where I'm me and I want to model that not only for all of you, but for my clients in the sessions to see that we don't all have to be perfect. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest pieces is that a lot of therapists in the past were able to sit behind a blank slate and not really put themselves out there in a vulnerable way. And and when we do this in the podcast, when, when therapists are bringing themselves into the room, when they have a personal brand, it is something where people aren't necessarily responding to therapy in general. It's not mental health stigma that they're responding to necessarily. It's you. 
And that can be very terrifying for people who have typically sat in the shadows behind a notebook, behind a blank slate. But as we talk with other therapists in our community and our networks, there seems to be a couple of different camps just in their response to what we're trying to accomplish. One camp is the people who already agree with us and we love those people. They, they're they extremely smart. They absolutely know what they're talking about. Absolutely. <laughs> Anytime that we can preach to the choir, we will gladly do so. There's another camp though that really has come from more of that traditional psychodynamic blank slate atmosphere. And I've noticed some, some pushback, some questioning of what our motives are, and even a hint of, are you guys sane? And- <laughs> I've not heard the are we sane. Is that really happening, Kurt? <laughs> It, it, it's it's underlying, but got it, uh, got it. <laughs> but even with our intentions of broadcasting how Katie and I practice, how we live, how we bring ourselves into session, that some of that vulnerability does inform practice. And for some people, the blank slate atmosphere is a great place to hold that vulnerability without necessarily having that projection back onto the client. Whereas the style that Katie and I tend to use, and and what we really do encourage out of the people who will listen to us and will come to our trainings is to not only not project it onto the client, but to fully take ownership of it ourselves. And taking ownership can be an interesting process. When I work with my consulting clients, there's oftentimes some blocks that come up around owning mistakes or owning who you are as a person. I think recently I was talking with someone about expectations, and I think there are such mixed expectations about how somebody should be. And so when somebody's grappling with, what should I do? What should I not do? And and they want to put themselves forward as this perfect image. It's impossible. And so people are kind of tying themselves up in knots, trying to be who they should be or, or doing the things that they should be without doing some of this work of being vulnerable, understanding who you are as a clinician and being able to accept mistakes. And oftentimes mistakes come from experimenting, not going in with this is how I should be. And so I think that stuff can be really, really hard to grapple with. And, I, and it puts you in more of a place of human being on the journey versus experts sitting back and being able to provide the treatment. And if you look at vulnerability on a continuum with perfection being an impossible goal to reach out on the far end of that spectrum, that where we do move more towards that perfectionistic and in a healthy way is recognizing and owning our vulnerabilities. This might be the mistakes that come up in session. I know that I was initially taught, don't apologize to clients. That if, oh, you, wow. have, if you have done something in session, you have done it with intention and it might be something worth processing through. But if you do in fact make a mistake that that's a client projecting onto you, what might be an imperfection about you? That is so, so bad. I mean, I I guess I could say it in a better way, but not being a real person in the session and not actually claiming your own mistakes can be so harmful for clients because they saw it happen. And it's almost like gaslighting to pretend that nothing happened and it was intentional and whatever's happening on their end has nothing to do with you. And I can imagine that part of it too is informed by a legal protection as well. That if I admit to a client in session, you know what, hey, I messed up on that, that there might be some fueling of, oh, that's that's grounds for a malpractice lawsuit. What- yeah, I, I can see that. But I think that that's too defensive and reactionary and doesn't focus in on the relationship. And it really goes contrary to owning the vulnerabilities and owning the mistakes that we do make. I know that the there have been times, whether 
it's you know something that was mistimed that I said in session, uh, not preparing a client for a specific intervention enough that have really kind of hampered the therapeutic rapport. And what I've found is that in directly dealing with things with clients, that a lot of times it, it becomes much, much smaller than what it ever could have been made out to be. That a series of interactions with a teenager where I'm missing out on what they're really trying to communicate is something where when I do recognize that that's happening, I, I'm fully ready now to say, you know what, I I completely missed that. I'm sorry. Like, let help me understand you so that way I can continue to help us move forward. I know for me, it's kind of the same thing. I think what you're talking about is is in some ways customer service. I messed up. Let me let me make that right. Let me figure out how to do this better. I think for me, there's this additional piece of modeling. How do you make mistakes? How do you make repair? And I think for my clients, the more I make mistakes, the more I think they feel comfortable being who they are. I think when I show myself as a as a vulnerable person with flaws, there's definitely some unsettling that can happen. Like, oh, I can I trust Katie to have me my back on this? But I think you know, is she going to have her own stuff? But typically, I'm I'm bringing myself and my flaws in a way into the room in a way that supports we're two human beings interacting and trying to understand the world in a different way, trying to to function better in the world. And I'm the guide because I'm sitting in the therapist seat today. And so I think that it's it's something where when I don't accept mistakes or I don't claim my own mistakes, I don't show imperfections to my clients, they feel the, this unrealistic expectation of what success looks like, how they should behave, how, how they should be feeling. And it can be, it can really harm the process because they feel like, well, you know, you're totally cool with it, Katie. I'm like, no, there's times when I'm totally upset or I get anxious or, you know, I double scheduled somebody and, and I was able to show her how mortified I was that, that I had two people on the schedule because of a technical glitch. And so just being able to show that those mistakes can be so healing for my clients because they see me as the expert, even though I don't try to put myself in that place. And the fact that I have flaws means that they can too. This can interplay in, in a lot of different ways. I know that when I've been supervising before, when I've been teaching before, that a lot of people look to me as you know, being in charge in the room and saying that the greatest moments throughout the semester or throughout our supervisory relationship are not when I talk about what I did well, but what I missed and how I recognized the mistakes that I was making not only improved the therapeutic relationship, but it would also improve the supervisory relationship or improve the teaching relationship as a permission of we don't have to hold ourselves up to an absolute impossible perfection, that we don't have to be driven by anxiety to perform in a certain way, but that we can really then focus on what is the real relationship that is happening in the room. For me, that shows up when I speak as well. When I'm talking about my own experiences with burnout or making mistakes or those kinds of things, I can see people in the room take a deep breath, light up, respond, you know, whereas when I'm just kind of talking about the theory or the things that are the things that you can try, it's people are taking that in, but there's a human connection that happens when you say, hey, I'm a real person and I'm grappling with this too and I'm not perfect. And I think it can be very, very helpful to the people around us if we're able to do that. That being said, super hard. I know for me, I have a really hard time claiming my mistakes and being able to show myself with vulnerability. I, it doesn't mean I don't do it. It just means that it can be very painful. It can feel very unsettling. It can, you know, I can feel very vulnerable. It can feel unsafe. And so I guess my question for you, Kurt, is how do you, how do you navigate through that piece of it? It's clear that both of us are committed to being vulnerable to owning our own mistakes, but how do you manage the the personal 
reactions to it? The real big turning point in my career was I was at a conference and was in a several hour long workshop that was about owning your mistakes in the therapy room. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple hundred people in the room. We got into small groups. And for a couple of hours, we practiced different client type situations that might come up that would traditionally make the therapist uncomfortable. A client who might be expressing a sexual attraction to you, a client who's accusing you of only being in the process for the money or client with borderline personality who's shifted from idolizing you to demonizing you and really practicing those in the moment aspects of how do you work through this not only as a clinical problem, but really focusing on the therapeutic relationship as well in order to model through that problems in relationships can be overcome and that it comes with self-reflection on both people's part. And really in the therapy room, it's about being able to model to the client that I can take care of my side of the room. I can take care of what I am doing. And through this process, I'm modeling that it's okay for you to own up to the mistakes that you might be bringing into this too. But the first step is you as the therapist in the room, taking that on and showing that flaws are okay. Yeah. I think for me that that part is, is so important. I know in talking to clinicians who work with families, especially when I was supervising and managing programs, it would I would get a lot of younger clinicians who would come in and talk about how the parents were awful and they were so defensive and there was a lot of judgment on the behavior of the parents because the parents were coming and saying, hey, you did this wrong or my kid's not getting better or there was complaints that usually were coming in. And it, it kind of hit at this, am I making a mistake? I think there was some different responses to it and sometimes it was part of the treatment process. But being able to, to go from a place of, you're right, you were expecting X and you ended up with Y. Whether it was right for you to expect X, you know, you don't have to claim it. You don't have to say like, of course, I was wrong. Please sue me. But it's that piece of what I'm hearing is you're saying that this is what I did wrong and this is what you were expecting and this is what you actually got. So let's sort through what actually is reasonable to expect at this point and how do we make this right? How do we how do we reconnect? And so I think those types of mistakes, the interpersonal mistakes are actually something that I feel pretty able to grapple with. I think there's always the times when there's going to be mismatch matches and things that aren't going to work out. I think it's almost more the self-judgment of, was that the right intervention? Did I put the right marketing thing out there? Are people accepting me for who I am that I think I struggle with more than the interpersonal? And I know that that's coming up a lot for me in, in launching this podcast is figuring out how do I claim that I'm this goofy person that I think we even have me singing in one of these episodes. Like I just, <laughs> how do I claim all this? Because I think that's what we're really talking about having therapists do in the room is, is they can be the therapist that sings. They can be the therapist that, that runs with their clients or that has weird sense of humor, those kinds of things. And, and fully embodying yourself means that you're put, putting yourself out there to be theoretically accepted or not accepted. When we do project ourselves out there, that there is a certain part of the market that we might be trying to reach as far as clients, that we might be trying to reach as far as a referral source. And for what Katie's talking about is part of how we've talked about in some of our other episodes of branding yourself and of maintaining the relationships to your referral sources is being consistently you, that mm -hmm. there's a lot of fakeness that you can project out into the world that people are going to see through eventually anyway. Part of how I build the people that I refer to is I don't necessarily refer to them after the first or second time. It's the people that I really know are going to be consistently themselves. And part of this is the own work that we do in our own psychotherapy 
therapy in being able to reflect back on ourselves and then being able to turn what we reflected back on and being able to project that aspect of ourselves out there either as a strength or as something that we're working on to overcome. And this then gets into some of the theoretical work and Yellum's done a bunch of writing on trying to take clients further than where you've gone yourself. It's possible, but it's only possible through the process of being able to reflect on where your limitations are. I think that's really important to, to keep in mind because I talk to a lot of therapists that aren't in their own psychotherapy. And I don't know that we always need to all be in therapy. I'm, I'm in therapy. I don't fully claim that. And I think it helps me as a trauma therapist. It helps, helps me as an entrepreneur to keep myself moving forward and being ahead of my clients, so to speak. But I think there's this piece of ownership and identity as a business owner, as, as a private practitioner that can be also hard to define, especially when you haven't figured out what parts of your story you're going to claim, what you're going to bring in. And I think that's that's something that, that I was thinking about when you were talking, Kurt, is really understanding where you want to set the boundaries on self-disclosure. Where do you want to set the boundaries on what part of your story that you tell? Because I think in truth, we can be authentically ourselves and not share all of ourselves. And I think that, that that's one of the things that I think the distinction that needs to be made for some folks is being able to be vulnerable without being completely, uh, I don't know, open to everything with boundaryless. You know, I think there's structure around who you are as a therapist that claims yourself, that, that claims the parts of yourself, but just like you wouldn't necessarily drink and curse and do things with every single person that you know, you don't have to tell every part of your story. You don't have to be fully present with all of your pieces in every interaction. And so I think that the distinction is sometimes, am I fully myself or am I not? And I think there's really actually a spectrum of where you fall and how a professional version of you authentically is what we're talking about. When we first sat down and we're planning out, even doing a podcast in general, one of the ideas that we really sparked around was the idea that a therapist has a professional, a personal, and a private life. Mm -hmm. They're not three very separate things, but more along the lines of a continuum. And the professional lives is how we advertise ourselves, how we represent ourselves. The personal life is where we pull from our own experiences in choosing what to self-disclose for the benefit of the client. And it's being able to navigate through that. When I'm working with supervisees on how to use countertransference as a positive therapeutic tool, a lot of the feedback that I hear from them, including how I was initially taught to be a therapist, is that Countertransference is something that you should acknowledge, but you should largely try to avoid. And I work with my supervisees on not only recognizing that countertransference is there, but even being able to use it in the room with clients as it's happening. For example, I had a client somewhat recently that was asking for my feedback on a letter that he had written to a family member. And what I had really acknowledged when he asked for specific feedback was that I was bored out of my mind while he was reading it. <laughs> And I use that as not as a punishing sort of thing. And I, I did make sure to let him know this. That, you know, it's it's not that what you're saying is boring. It's just that there's so much there that it's hard to follow. And that where I found myself going was, what am I going to say to you that you should say instead? I use that as a recognition of, I don't have my thought fully processed yet. But what I think I'm saying is that you need to go in with bullet points, not with a novel. And we really turn that into a, a positive experience because 
because I was able to be honest and reflective to him about what my experience was of him going through this particular therapeutic technique. I think that's so great because I think too often we, you know, really monitor what we say or how we interact. And I think that can come across as as being inauthentic or, or not vulnerable enough or, or not, I don't know, not real enough where people aren't taking us seriously. And I think being able to say, hey, I got kind of bored or hey, this is this is what I, I think should happen, I think can be so much more effective than talking around in circles and wondering and, and moving through this almost non-speaking that some therapists can do. I think saying what you mean, being yourself, all of that can can have a really big impact on, on a client, on a supervisee. And I think it's important to be able to do that respectfully and thoughtfully, but also from a, a place of authenticity. And I can't underestimate the importance of the nuance of using this as a therapeutic technique and that it really is something that before you do this with clients, that it's something that you practice with other therapists, that you work on in supervision as a way of being able to work in the moment and being able to work honestly, being able to choose your words in a way that is not going to harm the client. I'm very fortunate that I have a very genuine relationship with the client that I brought up with the letter. And he even jokes with me, Kurt, sometimes I just need your blunt opinion on things. (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not blunt. I'm honest and I'm straightforward about what my reactions are. And I'm very careful to have formulated for him a relationship that's based on acknowledging the limits of where my reactions and my opinions and my theoretical orientation come from. Yeah, I think for me, what I found most helpful in doing that is actually front-loading before I've made a mistake, before I've been real, kind of setting a frame around it. I've talked with clients and, and you know, both therapy clients and consulting clients saying, this is who I am. I'm not going to always have the right answers. There's going to be times I miss things. There's going to be times I, I say the wrong thing. I'm a human being and I want to fully acknowledge that in the room with you and, and talk about how we're going to handle that when it happens, not even if it happens, but when it happens and be able to open the dialogue from the beginning saying, hey, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to share my insights with you. I'm going to help you identify new insights, move forward with whatever you need to move forward with. But there's times when I'm going to mess up and I don't want you to just get mad and and go away. I want you to respond back because what I've missed may open up a new path for creativity. It may open up a new path for healing. It's hard to know what's going to happen there, but but us being able to discuss it in the room is so critical because we're in this together. We're two human beings, and if we can, you know, not you know navigate through and manage these things, we're both going to grow as human beings, and you know, you're going to have a better outcome. One of the things that I do with my clients is I invite them in our intake session to provide me with feedback of things that they don't feel like are potentially going to not work. That if an intervention isn't going to feel right someday, if there's something about the room that isn't right, my West LA office is notorious for having the air conditioning cranked way, way too high by the people who control my thermostat next door. So (laughs) I invite any feedback. If it's too cold in the room, let me know. I'll turn the heater on. I, I want your feedback because I want to have this process work as best as possible for you. And if I don't know what your feedback is, I can't make corrections for you. I can handle whatever you've got to say. If it's something about the room, great. If I can change it, I will. If it's something about me, great. If it's something that I can change, I will. I wouldn't invite this feedback if I couldn't handle it. So Mm -hmm. be honest with your clients. Don't lie to them from the very beginning in kind of this attempt to 
be falsely genuine, but really step into owning the vulnerabilities of what you're bringing in. Be a model for your clients of how to graciously accept feedback as a way of being able to improve yourself and be able to move forward. I think that's critical because for me, I know when I actually set the frame of I'm a human being, I'm going to make mistakes and this is how we handle it together in this relationship, whether whether it's a therapeutic relationship, a consulting relationship, whatever, that when I do that, I've now provided myself with the ability to, to take whatever comes my way, mostly. I mean, there's still going to be the stuff that's like, oh, Oh, that's, you know, straight in the heart. But I think that in general, when I've been able to do that, the feedback that I get is usually less angry. It's usually very direct or or potentially even, even if it's circumspect, it's very much from a place of, I saw this, Katie, and I trust that you're going to listen to it and let me know what you think about it, that you're going to try to make it better. You're going to help me understand it. I can be angry with you, but not worried that it's, it's irreparable. I can say, hey, I didn't like that, and you're going to be able to respond to it. And so for me, even just setting the frame makes it a lot easier to take it in. And I think in the same way, I hope that we can do that with our colleagues. Because I've seen too often on our, you know, the different Facebook groups or, or different consulting groups or things like that, I can see, I see a lot of support and like, hey, you know, you did your best or it's okay or thanks for sharing your vulnerability or thanks for sharing your mistakes. But I've also seen people who really, you know, not it's not to the point of being a troll, but there's definitely times when people lash out and say, you're unethical, you're doing it the wrong way, you're doing these things. And we're not allowing for mistakes and vulnerability in our profession. And I really think that if we can set up a frame that that really defines that we're all in this trying to be the best clinicians that we can be, trying to be the best colleagues that we can be, and that we're going to put our best forward. And sometimes that's there's going to be mistakes. Sometimes there's going to be stuff that people disagree with. I think it opens up some space for more of these conversations like we're having today where people can say, hey, I tried something and you know what? I totally effed it up. And you know what? I need to, to process this with my peers who can help me then look at what we learned and what we can try next. There's also a vulnerability that comes with being accessible. And as we're now fully into the 21st century, where clients know that for many of us, we operate our businesses through our cell phones, that if it's scheduling the next session into your app, or if it's processing a credit card through Swear or whatever apps you might be using, that they know that you have a cell phone. And they know that most cell phones have text messages or that you're going to be checking your phone when you're at home or when you're on vacation. So there does then become a balance of setting those boundaries and being able to process through those boundaries, knowing that your clients know that you're accessible when you're not in session. Yeah, I think there's th- there's that piece of you become more human because you're more accessible and really figuring out how you set the limits around that. And I think each person has to choose. I think that there's people who have certain frameworks like DBT or whatever, where they do coaching calls, they are available, you know, somewhat 24/7. And then there's folks who have a really strict frame that that don't that aren't available after hours have safety plans so people don't need to get into contact with them after between sessions. And I think being able to find ways that you can set the limits. For me it's the do not disturb on my phone. Like I just try to make sure that when when I don't want to be accessible to my clients I really am not. But I think in social media there's a certain amount of being accessible to everybody all the time, especially if you have a personal brand. And so 
people can be interacting with you even when you're not interacting with them. And so there's, you know, I, I think this is a larger topic, but there's there's so many different ways that we're accessible, that we're visible, that our clients are having expectations of us based on us as human beings, on brand, as brands, as therapists, that can be kind of hard to navigate through. And our big point through all of this is acknowledge that these things are there. There's not going to be a perfect answer for every single one of us, nor even within every single one of our practices. But the major step in moving past these hangups or these things that will hold us back is acknowledging that these problems are there, changing the ones that we can, and really being able to navigate around the ones that come up or surprise us in a way that's healthy for our business, for our profession, as well for the, for the clients that we help. And for ourselves too, because I think when we feel like we have to put up a front or that we can't be imperfect or that we can't be as fully present as, as maybe we want to be, it can really take a toll emotionally. It can take a toll on competence. Imposter syndrome can come up if we feel like we're hiding. And so being able to bring yourself appropriately into the room, be vulnerable, be present, be real, and be able to make mistakes, it can be something where it is a much more more nourishing profession to be in. And I think that that is what we've got for today. And if I'm truly vulnerable right now, I've said everything that I have to say on this topic without going into some sort of expository, say, hour-long episode. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've I've said what I needed to say. I think I'm sure there's other other episodes that will come from some of the the subtopics and the different pieces that we have. But but yeah, I think we've done what we could do for today. So as this gets released out there, uh, if you are attending the 2017 Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, come by our exhibit table, say hi to us. We might even invite you to say a piece for our podcast. And if you're not attending, please hit us up on our social media and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 